Welcome to Mere Utterance, the podcast where we explore small stories and the big impact they have on our lives. In this episode, we converse with Greg Bellingham, who shares the anecdotes and life lessons that surround being a contemplative, a thinker, and an asker of big questions. With over 30 years of experience in theology and comparative religion, Greg is a published author, a mentor, and committed perennialist who believes there is a deep truth in everything. He also happens to be my dad. This week, we take a deep dive into theories of knowledge and more importantly, understanding how to live in accordance with your intuition from a heart space. Okay, Greg, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast and for joining us today. My pleasure. Good to be here. Yeah, good to have you. I'm going to start with my question that I ask everybody, uh, which is if you could introduce yourself at this moment in time, how would you do that? Yeah, I'd probably say that I was a, um, a creative, contemplative person, a thinker, yeah. and an asker of big questions. Not always, and not always able to answer the big questions, but certainly <laughs> ask, I, I ask lots of big questions. Yeah, yeah, nice. I was going to say, what comes first, the creativity or the contemplation? Oh, a bit of both. I think creativity is an output for me, um, which requires a bit of discipline. So if I if I'm not disciplined in actually creating stuff, nothing actually gets created. But the <laughs> contemplation comes pretty easily, really. I, was gonna, I feel like I resonate with that one as well. I can think about it a lot, but actually putting something out is quite different. Yeah, a big. I mean, I'm a big reader, so and I like to read. So I spend a lot of time reading and contemplating the stuff that I've read and different ideas that people have had. Yeah. So. What are you reading at the moment? I've been reading. Um, I've been reading a lot of Eastern literature. I've been reading Yoga Sutras and Marabhata and Bhagavad Gita and just some Hindu stuff and just getting my head around how those cats think, which is which is very different from the kind of the philosophical tradition that I've studied historically. So yeah, so I know your full history. So um, can you just go through briefly? where your philosophical background is and why it's significant that you've now transitioned to reading literature like the Bhagavad Gita and the Yoga Sutras in comparison. Yeah, so, um, and, and probably for sake of transparency, you know, everyone <laughs> should know that you are actually my daughter and I am actually your dad. So, yes. Um, so the mystery has been revealed as to, as to why you know my history. I mean, the reality is I... I sort of had formal education like everyone else did and then, um, you know, did a bunch of things after school and then went into teaching. But was I would say at that point, which is sort of, you know, in my uh, late teens, early 20s, was, was quite, was still a really searching, questioning kind of guy, um, had big questions. And, and because I did, I was raised in a relatively conservative background, you know, Christianity was kind of where I was the philosophical, was the dominant philosophical and religious kind of context that I was brought up in. Um, and I probably I probably had a bunch of experiences in my early 20s that opened me up to spirituality, but there was never, it was never going to be, it was never going to start where I would adopt, a, say, an Eastern spirituality or I wasn't going to become a Hare Krishna or, <laughs> you know, do that sort of stuff. And so as I investigated that, I investigated that down a really formal kind of 
Christian paradigm. So I, I actually studied theology. And I think what happens when you actually study theology as a discipline is it's not, it's not so much, you're not so much studying just a religion, but you're studying, um, you know, it's ideas about God, ideas about ultimate reality, ideas about ultimate truth, um, if there is such a thing. Um, and so you get introduced to everything. You get introduced to the history of Western thought, the Greeks, um, you know, the history, the history of ancient civilizations, the history of empires. Um, you get, you, you get a lot of that. Mm. Um, and, and that, that was a really indigenous space for me. Those ideas, those kind of conversations about truth and about reality and about how we, how do we interpret history and where does the divine fit into that? Does the divine exist? And uh, I mean, I, th- I also think that, you know, if you're studying because you have a, a fundamental belief in God, a lot of your study is going to be influenced by people who don't believe in God. Right. <laughs> because it's, it's the opposite side of the coin. So yeah. theism, good theism requires a good atheism as well. So you, you, you're, not, you're not just studying within the tent. You're also studying people who are outside the tent saying, this is ridiculous, this, this is nonsense. And you said that you found that to be an Indigenous space. Is that because you had contemplated this prior to formal study or were you that way inclined to begin with or did you sort of pick that up after you started studying? I think it's just, I think that whole space of inquiry is not something that's cultivated in school. Yeah. You know, uh, what was cultivated in the school that I went to was maths and English. If you did upper English probably... You were introduced to Shakespeare and and good poetry and good ideas and good thematic sort of study, but I wasn't that sophisticated at school, and and so school for me was reading, writing, arithmetic, and, <laughs> like um, most people nowadays, I think. And I was a sports guy, so I liked sports more than I liked school. Yeah, my best subject was PE, but I did like general studies when we did talk and debate social ideas or things that were happening in our environment. And I didn't thrive at school. I didn't. I wasn't academically successful at school. It wasn't sciences weren't my thing, and maths wasn't my thing. So I didn't do particularly well. Um, and then when I got out and found a whole world of thought and thinking, and a whole series of people that were discussing ideas, that I just went, "Wow, I, I love this stuff." You know, this is. These people have really, probably just gone deeper than I'd ever gone before. I'd ask bigger questions, better questions, and I, I love that. That was that was a happy place for me. Yeah. How do you cultivate a practice of asking big questions? Because I feel like when you first enter into that sphere or any new sphere of knowledge, you're surrounding yourself with people who ask questions that you haven't thought to ask before mm. and you're thinking about things that you haven't thought to think and you're creating all these new neural pathways and links and all of that sort of things happening mm. but inevitably does that begin to stagnate yeah i think so and i think maybe one of the things that really helped me is that history is a really great indicator or it's a great it's a great leader in this space too because when you you study an idea that idea has a context like if you study the greeks the greeks have a context um you know greek culture greek philosophy you know the idea about you know the polis, the the state, and so you you can't really study Greek thought without paying attention to the place of the philosopher in the state, 
And so when I first studied, say, you know, the Christian Gospels and Jesus, you're, you're essentially studying a first century Jewish guy that lived under Roman emperor. And you can then ask a bunch of questions about what did the people of that time think? Mm. Um, and then that just leads into, you know, if you wanted to study Buddhism, you say, OK, so what, what was the historical context around that? Or if you wanted to say, you know, when was the Gita written? Well, it's part of a broader body of work called the Moravata and it, it, it sits in that text and the study of big ideas often comes when you just look at where the ideas came from and who who were the people having the conversation and what was happening for them and right. what were they inquiring about so for me history has has been a really good lead into those questions right okay. and then you can ask then I ask the question you know what historically is happening for us yeah what's happening in our society and and is there a, is there a broader context or a broader movement of stuff that's happening. I was going to also ask what the transition was for you moving from studying relatively conservative Christian peoples and ideas to studying Eastern philosophy and that context and those ideas. Yeah, I mean, I think that was, again, you know, that I think when you, whenever you're studying stuff or, or whenever you're asking questions or wherever, you know, it it happens in the context of a a growth movement you know you're growing as a person you're 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 finding ideas that are compelling you're you're trying to incorporate those ideas into your life Um, and for me you know like I I spent 23 years um, in formal kind of Christian ministry and so those ideas had a a lived context of trying to create community trying to build community um, and trying to run community-centred organisations that responded to various social needs where those communities were placed. And often that was a big gap, you know, like you would have... It's Often people hold ideas quite in a, quite an esoteric way. You know, you can hold an idea about something, but the, the great challenge is, you know, it, does that idea get incarnated? Does it get lived out? Does it, does it get practically expressed? You know, or does it just sit there as kind of a... a, a an ethereal concept and so in the process of, sort of like having good ideas and or you know big thoughts about ultimate issues or even about social issues you try you try and see those things expressed and the great testing ground for most ideas is whether it has any traction um in society in your in your, you know can you live it out can you make it work and a lot of time you can't and so for me a lot of my quite orthodox Christian faith got deconstructed not not because I wanted it to or not because I, you know, was a super wise cat that just saw behind the curtain and went, <laughs> whoa, I know a bigger truth. It's it's because I tried to live it out and the harder I li- tried to live it out, the harder it became to sustain certain ideas. So, um, I, mean, I mean, a classic example of that for me is, you know, Christianity talks a lot about forgiveness. It actually doesn't tell you how to forgive. It doesn't tell you how to forgive, yeah. right? So it says, you know, you, you know, um, you know, forgive, you know, forgive others lest you be forgiven, sort of thing. So the idea is, you know, you've been forgiven, so forgive others, and if you don't forgive, then you won't be forgiven. So, so it's it's quite a binary concept. But I got a better idea on how to forgive by reading Buddhist literature, and by Which was? oh, just around mindfulness and around attachments mm. and around aversions and. Um, you know, the, the, there's kind of the samsaric circle of suffering because of your own attachments and because of your own aversion and because of your own ignorance. 
and and that you know you can't forgive because you're attached to something or you can't forgive because you're averse to something and I thought oh that's okay so so forgiveness isn't just this kind of act of compassion where you know you just forgive even though the person's a you know even though the situation's unresolved and the person hasn't changed and and, and maybe you haven't changed but you you forgive because you examine what was I attached to what what was my agenda in that? How was I culpable? How am I participating in the situation? Which is, these are all, I mean, so Buddhism in that regard taught me really practical skills of just assessing how I was participating and playing, right. you know. Is that introspection the catalyst for a shift in worldview or a shift in how you Well, living? it was for me because when you, because, you know, um, because my early thinking was very tribal, was is a really good way of thinking about it, you know. Like, you, and you know, you're not really aware of your tribe. You're not really aware of your context until you've 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 lived out of it, and you've uh, and then it hasn't worked, or aspects of it hasn't worked. I won't say the whole thing hasn't worked, but aspects of it seem to to not really be landing in your in your lived experience, and then. Um, and then you, you go looking, you know, you, um, uh, for me, I'm going up, why, why, what's going on? I'm questioning, I'm trying to figure out why it's not going on. And, and then you go, oh, wow, um, I'm, I'm living in a really closed space. But, you know, you, you don't start. Knowing that? No, no, I don't think you do. But then you see I'm living in a really closed space. You see that my ideas have been quite limited because I've been part of a tribe where certain things are legal and certain things are not legal. Certain questions you ask, certain thoughts you have, certain ideas are just... Um, certain presuppositions about the way things are are just downloaded into it, downloaded into the culture of the tribe that you're part of or the people group that you're part of, and you, you initially adopt those quite uncritically. Yeah. You, you don't even know you've adopted them. And it's not until something deconstructs that or until you hit a wall with those ideas and then you go, wow, I'm not, I'm not progressing here, I'm not growing. And, and for me, that, that shift was uh, very much an existential frustration. I'm not, I, I feel like I'm stagnating. Why? What's, why am I frustrated? Why am I not enjoying life? Why am I not... Um, feeling an inner sense of peace or an inner sense of happiness or why are my relationships getting hard or there's any number of different kind of elements that you can you can look at and if you if you're willing to be really vulnerable and say well I've got to negotiate some of my ideas because they just don't work and then for me you go okay well it does work and then you then I think that that failure makes you open to other voices right um, and inevitably, you don't. I don't think you start massively open. I didn't start with any desire to be a Buddhist, and I still wouldn't think that I was a Buddhist today by any stretch of the imagination. But I do have a childhood memory of you sitting and listening to Buddhist music and meditating. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think just trying to have a crack, you know. Yeah. Everyone talks about Buddhists being super, you know. The, the, I mean, the word Zen now doesn't really relate. I mean, everyone walks into a house and goes, oh, there's a real Zen vibe here. <laughs> You know, which is Gee, which is like it's thanks thanks uh, uh you know white person <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah I mean I, I still don't know what a Zen vibe is but it, it it's synonymous with relaxed calm peaceful tranquil yeah um, I've yet to meet anyone that walks through and goes oh there's a real Protestant vibe here <laughs> so, you know, oh, like, thank goodness <laughs> yeah you know or, 
no one's ever walked into my house and gone, oh, wow, there's a, such a cool Hindu vibe here. You know, like, so, yeah, I think you, you, get a, you get a whiff that some other group of people have got something locked and loaded yeah. that you don't have. And so for me, Christian contemplation didn't work, but Buddhist contemplation was about mindfulness and about the incorporation of your body and becoming still and single-focused. Mm. And I, I thought, yeah, I, I really need that. So that led to, you know, buying a library full of Buddhist literature and and then, you know, that led to buying a whole lot of stuff around um, human consciousness and thinking about that and a whole lot of stuff. And then you find that a lot of the stuff around human consciousness is seated in Hinduism anyway. So then that really? leads to, Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because uh, all the yoga sutras are about all that sort of stuff as well, the way that the mind works and the energies out of which people operate. and mm. So a lot of the mythic Hindu stuff is about um, a singularity of consciousness, a singularity of the divine or of, a, of ultimate reality called Brahman, you know, um, and how that takes a multiplicity of forms, but, but essentially that there's a one thing. So for a religion that's meant to be, you know... Um, you know, polytheistic, multiple gods, it's still it's still essentially a monotheism in so much as there's one great source of it all, which is which I think is a beautiful idea. So then I fall in love with the ideas that other cultures have and Right. Because it uh, all sort of belongs anyway. Well I just think I just think you just you just if a good idea or a good thought or something that rings true in your own heart, it just rings true. It, it, um, you don't have to culturally appropriate it and I don't have to become an Indian guru but I can go, that's just an amazing thought. And if you percolate on that and live out of that, it becomes a generous it becomes generous in your own reality. I, that's where I sort of wanted to go next too, is that you and I know this of you as your daughter, but you have a very rich thought life and, mm. and contemplative life. How do you take that and move that into practice? Or how do you take that and move that into interacting with other people? Because it's all well and good to have things sort of locked and loaded in your own brain, but then you get out into the world and there's mm. stimulus and, you know, people reacting and responding and then it takes another form, really. Well, I think that's the great challenge. I think I've found that a great challenge in my own life. Um, look, I do have a really rich kind of private life and personal life in terms of exploring ideas and on any given day, if I take that out into the public domain, you know, I may, if I run into 100 people, I may find one person that is playing with the same ideas. So it doesn't, it doesn't find an immediate practical expression. Um, and so I, I wrestle with how to uh, participate with others, you know, what service looks like for me, um, try not to try not to become a hermit on a hill, um, just, you know, entertaining myself with my own contemplations, but try and find a practical expression to that in terms of serving others. What does service look like to you? I think more and more service to me looks like um, helping people around relationships. And not because, I'm, not because I'm a relational expert in the sense of, not because I've always had functional relationships but just because I think the whole the whole thing seems like connection the whole 
it seems like everything's connected to me. The, the older I get, the more I look at everything and it just seems like it's all connected. Right. Humans to one another, uh, humans to themselves, individual humans to themselves, humans to the environment in which we live in. Um, so you help people connect to I themselves, to, to others? To I, I, try to, I try to do that, yeah, I try to do that. And part of the challenge of doing that is finding a simple and practical language. I mean, right. We, we tend to live in a society that is, is still really um, enamoured and transfixed on the idea of usefulness, practical usefulness. I personally think we still think in terms of commodification and units sold and profit made and impact. And yep. so we're still, we're still trying to always measuring the value of something by what it's what it produces um, and normally those measurements are quite crude we don't measure it in terms of richness of human experience or, or we don't measure it in terms of um, depth and quality and substance of relationship we measure it in terms of how many people turned up to the program how much money did we make can we turn that into a commercial idea and sell it can we enrol people in a course? You know, it's all that sort of stuff. And I find that stuff extraordinarily tiring. Right. Does that sort of mindset also hinder people from connecting? Uh, I, I mean, I think, I think it does. And I think, and maybe this is, I, think, I definitely think it does because I think it's primarily a commercial Consideration. It's a commer- it's a commercialization of e- of everything, a commodification of most things, and maybe we maybe we're experiencing that on the back of um, a decline in investment in the liberal arts. Yeah. Um, you know, there's very little that you hear about the arts in our society, um, and I think the arts were always, the, you know, the artisan world was always the world where people were creating stuff not because it necessarily turned a profit but because it was beautiful people were captivated by beauty and um, you know, beauty of kookaburras in the background <laughs> um, but it's true in art for the sake of art and expression and creation yeah, right? yeah 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 i think so and i think i think that's when life gets really rich when yeah. we're, we're we're appreciating things because of there's a there's an elemental essence to them that mm. is is just worth paying attention to. I think that sort of flows into what you were saying at the very beginning too about creation being an overflowing of contemplation. Yeah. Which I think those things intertwining make so much sense and I think if you're at a deficit in either one, they they hinder one another. Yeah, well, contemplation is often not pursued because... Like what have you done today? <laughs> what did you <laughs> do? What did you? What did you? Think. Yeah. What did you produce? What was the? What's the value of that? What did you contribute? Um, and you know, to and arguably, people look at the discipline of a contemplative life and go, "Well, it's very indulgent." Right. Um, and there's a certain amount of truth in that. But I think that there's a bunch of people out there, probably, and I would liken myself to this group of people, is there's a bunch of people where life just doesn't work unless we do that. 
Really? So, yeah, so I don't think I embraced contemplation because it was necessarily... Um, it's, it's, it sure as heck isn't commercially rewarding, but I, I embraced it because it's the only way that my life makes sense. How did you come to that conclusion? Oh, just through failure more than anything Really? Else. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just through, just through trying to pick up things that, again, you know, trial and error, trying to make things land in my own world. But, you know, I am not a corporate... I'm not a corporate being. You know, I have a favourite saying. You know, I'm a mountain tree. I'm a, I'm a I'm a mango tree planted on a mountain top. <laughs> you know, when I'm trying to be a corporate guy, it's like I'm that mango tree on the top of Threadbow, and people go, "You haven't produced much fruit." And I go, "I'm like, just yeah, I'm cold." I'm lucky if I'm going to survive. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, you know, or I'm I'm a I have another quaint saying where I you know I'm a goldfish trying to climb a tree. Yeah. How's that going? Not, <laughs> not, n- not great. Um, so the older I've got, the more I've just gone, oh, like this does seem to be who I am. Yeah. And this is where I get life. That's, oh, it's beautiful and I love that. And I think that as your daughter, it's been really cool to see that mm. take shape and eventuate over the years we are living in a society that does value output. How do you not reconcile, but what is, what's the journey like in your own mind of going, I actually need to be a contemplative. I know that you said that you sort of realize that off the back of failure um, and struggling in different situations, but what's like the internal narrative that needs to switch from going, I should be doing X, Y, Z to going actually what really does resonate with me is this. Oh, yeah, I mean, I, uh, well, that's a great question. And it, the, the way that I've answered that is that I, I've just observed certain things. Like like a dog, for example, is a pack animal. Mm. Mm. And if, if, you leave, if you leave a dog, and a, and a dog will love being part of a family because it's part of a pack. And anyway, um, but if you leave a dog by itself... You know, a healthy young dog by itself in a backyard uh, with some patio furniture and a garden and some clothes on the line. <laughs> and that dog's gonna, a dog's gonna, at some point get you know seriously bored and then go, game on. I'm che- <laughs> I'm chewing furniture. Yeah. I'm ripping clothes off that clothesline. I'm digging holes in the garden. Okay. And you go, you could come home and go, bad dog, bad dog. So actually, no, really good dog because the dog was bored. The dog was lonely. The dog was not in its pack, had no context. Dog was isolated, so dogs do what dogs do. Right. It dug holes, chewed furniture and pulled stuff off the line. Good dog, really. And so I noticed in my own life that when I get myself into situations where I'm not meant to be, I actually behave really poorly. Right. Um, and I get rewarded by other people for, you know, for behaving poorly. And people tell me, you're not very good at this. You know? <laughs> um, I... I, I <laughs> I love what Jim Carrey said about his dad. You know, Jim Carrey says the source of his his humour came from his father who was a very, very funny man and would have made a great comedian but for whatever reason didn't become a comedian and became an accountant instead, got a job as an accountant and then got fired as an accountant because he wasn't a very good accountant. <laughs> Jim Carrey kind of says, well, you know, you can, you, can, you can fail at the thing you're not meant to be doing. And, and I thought, yeah, that's, that's very instructive for me because I think I have failed at different things and uh, 
I haven't failed them because I'm bad or I didn't try or because I, I wasn't willing to try. I failed at them because they have nothing to do with who I am. It's got, they've got nothing to do with me, you know, me trying to be corporate. It's like I'm not. Now, I have friends who are corporate and they're extraordinarily good at it. And it's such an indigenous and organic space for them. But for me, it's a horrible space. Yeah. And I dislike it. And I don't. And when I get under pressure in that space, I, I, I misbehave. You know, I'm too blunt or I'm too forthright or I judge people and say they aren't thought through or I have a whole lot of kind of coping mechanisms with trying to just survive in, a, in an environment that I find quite hostile. Mm-hmm. And everyone interprets, you know, people could look at that and go, he's, he's got issues, that guy. And in that context, For sure. I absolutely do. Yeah. You know, but then when I own the context out of which I should live and people come into that space and they see me living out of who I, who, living more closely to who I, I am and more truly to how I feel I'm meant to live, then they go, nice, nice guy, good guy. What does that look like? Like living that way, look like? Well, I mean, just having, for me, I mean, having time for people is massive. You know, having a, having a beautiful space. Um, everywhere that Ange and I have ever lived, we've tried to create beautiful space. Um, and we've tried to then open the doors to whoever wants to come into that space, whether it's your friends or our friends or whether it's strangers or whether it's people in crisis, we've always had a pretty open door policy. Mm. And then I think the gift that we've offered people is hospitality and time. Um, And so the most natural thing we're going to do is invite people to have a meal or hang out or talk or have a coffee with me on the front patio or go for a walk. Um, And that's kind of an open invitation to anyone really. Mm. Was that intentional or did that just organically? No, I think, it was, I think it was always just, it was always a default for me. Right. Even from as a young man, just spending time with people and hanging out with people and talking and having great conversations with people. I once was part of running a community with a group of guys and, and everyone would say, the leader of this, the leader of this group is, is this one particular guy who was very driven, very focused, very impressive great operator, get stuff done, get mm. stuff organised. And then they said, but if you've got an issue, you need to go around and talk to Greg and Ange. <laughs> and they go, well, why is that? Can't, can't so-and-so help me more? And they go, no, 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 he won't. He won't um, I mean, he'll, he'll give you a program or give you 10 steps, but if you go around to Greg and Ange, they'll spend three hours on the front patio with a cup of tea and some bickies. And, yeah. and, and, that, and I think it was when I moved to the country that I... Um, I moved to the country to, to, to run a church and I was sitting in a cafe one morning and I just went, leadership is actually relational. I always thought leadership was something else. I thought leadership was about being charismatic or being a bit driven or being really clear on your vision and your values and where you're going. And then I sort of went, no, leadership is influence and the way that I influence people is through relationship. And so relationships can be a beautiful space of leading others or supporting others. Um, and that was probably the start of just deconstructing the whole corporate leadership, top-down hierarchies, yeah. which I always found clumsy and hopeless. Yeah. In building relationship with people or holding space for people, what 
how do you do that? Or what are some, what's like the key thing or the key things that you need to be able to do that effectively? That's a really good question too. Um, well, for me, I think it's just curiosity. I just, I just want to know how it works. I want to know what someone's thinking. I want to know like what's happening for you. Like, where are you at? Um, the only real impediment to, to getting answers to those sort of questions is the level of trust that someone's willing to place in you to share with you what's really going on. Um, so, tr- so, so building trusting relationships where people can be transparent and honest um, and open. Um, and, then, and then for me, just introducing a higher category of 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 relating just like let's just talk about what's really going on like let's not stay in the shallows let's you tell me what's happening for you I'll tell you what's happening for me and then let's just let's go large let's get that that's the way I try and roll you know which is which? Which a lot of people aren't up for that. I was just going to say, how do people meet that? Because well, some people don't. <laughs> yeah. Some people just don't at all. Um, yeah. Some some people don't, and some people just go. I've been waiting to have these conversations my whole life. Like I feel like I can share anything with you. These are the best conversations. This is this is the most meaningful relationship in my life. You know. So I've got I've got a lot of people that I'm extremely close to. Um, and value those connections like singularly each one of them I value them really really deeply but at the core of those connections is an ability to be really transparent and honest Um, a willingness to say sorry because when you get close to people you inevitably hurt them and they hurt you so you can you can mess up in that space as well so there has to be a certain kind of generosity that is exchanged between everyone in that space, so generous, open, trusting relationships where you, where you try and, um, you, you, you try and dig, dig for the gold, and and find out what, what's going on really. I don't know if that's a good answer. I think not. that's a fantastic answer. It's also I'm, as I'm listening to you talking about how you and Mum, you and Ange had a space where it was sort of open invitation for a relationship to be built. And, you know, talking about curiosity and honesty and all of those sorts of things. It re- Obviously, it resonates with me because I'm your daughter, but it's also, you know, I'm such a product of you guys that, that the way that you guys did that, I grew up in that environment. Mm. And it's, you know, why today... I'm somebody who goes, let's start a podcast (laughs) asking people about their story because I very much grew up in the space where everyone's coming in. Everyone has a story. You know, you can get to a deep level with a lot of people. You can hold space. You can create authenticity and authentic connection. So it's cool to hear it from your mouth because I don't know whether – you know, you explicitly said to us as kids, you should do this, this and this, or you should create a relationship like this or be curious about this. But I think that in living that 
life in having that practice you instilled that in me anyway yeah well I don't think we ever did I don't think we ever did say that I think if anything we led with you know probably formal religion and we led with you know (laughs) very orthodox kind of um um traditional sort of values all of which as you kids got older um had to get recontextualized because your generation is not my generation and what what was kind of locked and loaded and, and seemingly obvious and correct for one generation is not locked and loaded and correct for the next generation. Mm. Um, and I'm not just talking about social values, I'm just talking about the way that you even house ideas or the fundamental stories behind what animates people. Mm. Um, you know, like, like, you know, Sam, your brother, my son, you know, he, he loves anime. It's like I just go, really? Where the <laughs> hell did that come from? You know, but there's a whole world of creativity there that he taps into. Yeah. Um, you know, Liddy's the same. She's she 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 loved going to China and learning a whole new language and just so we let we led with something that was quite obvious, but but it but the more you do life with people, then they take it in their own direction, and then you either follow them and and then that opens up another door another opportunity, another insight, another culture, another way that things can happen or um, or you stay. I think one of my favourite descriptors of where people can get is closed and sure. Where for, this, for the desire for um, certainty, security and an ongoing sense of belonging within the space that you're in, you close off to external influences and... and and in order to close off, um, you have to shut things out. And in the act of shutting things out, you tell yourself a story that you're completely sure that where you're at is the right place to be. So you now, so now we're in this really binary category of in the box and the you know me safe here, others out there. I'm right, they're wrong. I have the truth, they don't. If you believe this, you're for us. If you don't believe this, you're against us. If you believe this, you're right, they're wrong, you know. And so you're playing in really binary, dualistic categories. And so um, I think probably I had those same... I could have been a closed and sure guy, and I think at different times in my life I have been closed and sure. But then what happens if you have quality of relationship, people come into the closed and sure space and go, hey, you can trust me, but this isn't working. Yeah, Um, And I think that's what happened. And it was like, for me, it was like, well, am I going to allow this person to influence me and take me somewhere else and open open me to a series of experiences and ideas and a way of life that I don't know much about? Or am I going to shut off and insist that they conform to my cultural, Mm. you know, standards or melee or, you know, they're going to come into my space and, and be like me? In which case, it's kind of a colonisation, you know. Right. You just, you just, you're relating to people who are same, same. And I think, I think, early pluralism is a bit like that. Um, we're inclusive as long as we include people who don't ruffle our Disagree feathers, with us. which, which actually isn't, <laughs> which actually isn't really particularly no. inclusive, right? Um, the ultimate kind of plurality is that you include people that could positively hurt you and who are actually opposite to you. That's high-end plurality to me. Is is, And I think when you start to see that as a social goal or as a personal challenge, how do I include, how do I include my enemy? How do I include someone that I totally disagree with? Yeah. 
that's that's starting to be a life goal for me where I go, wow, that'll be a really that'll be a really good thing to do is to is to live in an ecosystem where there are confronting things in the ecosystem. There are there are things that compete with one another. Um, mm. Like in an ecosystem, you know, a kookaburra will want to eat that lizard or eat that snake. So that's quite adversarial. But they still exist in a singular ecosystem where everyone belongs. Yeah. And those ideas are really attractive to me. How do I exist alongside people that I absolutely don't agree with, but they still belong and I still belong? And how do we, how do we affirm mutual belonging? Do you think that's the core of plurality? I think it's the core of spirituality because you can't get there in your head. You can only get there in your heart. Yeah. You know, you can only say, I don't agree with you in my head, but in my heart I still... I still value your. I still value your participation. I still value your the fact that you're a life force turning up in a way that's totally contrary to the way I think you should be rolling. But you know what? You have that right to do that, and I affirm that, and I affirm the way that you're living with integrity or whatever it is. You know. What have been some core moments in your life that have moved you towards greater inclusivity or plurality or spirituality? Well, I think one of them would be just being honest about... It sounds so stupid, but um, your kids would come home with friends from school and, you know, <laughs> and here I, am oh, a no. Christ, here, I am, yeah, here I am a Christian minister who is a, is a conservative Protestant evangelical and, you know, there's this belief about heaven and hell. And if I believe that your little friends are going to hell, you know, I probably should get on my... I should get on my preaching bike and get those get those little kids saved before they have an eternity in hell. Oh my god! And and whilst my tradition taught that um, as a literal reality, I just couldn't be a dad that just terrorised kids with the threat of hell. <laughs> so I thought I'm not going to psychologically damage my kids and their friends. And so I was really honest about it. I said, "Wait a second. Do I really believe this hell thing or not?" And I went. Um, because I come out of my tradition and my tribe says that's true, I believe it. But I actually don't believe it because I'm not going to enforce it in my own family with my own kids and with their friends. So I went, oh, wow, that's the first absolutely stark evidence that, I, that I'm living out of a series of ideas that I actually don't believe. In my heart of hearts, I do not believe it. I believe them in my head, I don't believe them in my heart. Mm. And these are not livable concepts. And so then that began a series of things within my Christian tradition that I just went, no, actually don't believe in that either. Don't believe in tithing. Don't believe in... I don't believe in this and I don't believe in this and I don't believe in this and I don't believe in that. And that was... Um, that began a kind of a... That was one journey down a really deconstructive moment, you know, um, to, to where I got to a point, say, in my Christian faith where I thought we were on the wrong side of every conversation... We're on the wrong side of environmentalism. We're on the wrong side of gender equity. We're on the wrong side of sexual orientation and freedom in that space. We're on the wrong side of refugees. We're on the wrong side of... We're normally right-wing. We probably should be more socialist and left-wing. Our Jesus looks more like a pharaoh or a Roman emperor than a first-century Palestinian refugee. Um, <laughs> so I go, I'm not sure what Jesus were following, but it sure as heck doesn't look like the one that I read about in the Bible. Yeah. Um, so so that, was, that would be one way that that happened, um, that just being really honest about 
do I actually believe this in my head or do I believe it in my heart? And taking conviction from a headspace to a heart space. And I, I talk about that as muddy water of the head, clear water of the heart. The head gets muddled. It's like it's like the water in the Parramatta River or the Cooks River. You can't see the bottom. It gets stirred up. There's lots of stuff in it. It's polluted. But then you go drop down into your heart and you go, oh, this is like a mountain stream. I can see straight through this to the bottom. I can see everything here. It's clear. So I, I try to drop from my head into my heart and then that's a much clearer space. How do you drop from the head into the heart? Well, I think they're different energies. I think head energy is a cerebral kind of... It involves critical analysis and thought process and stuff like that. But the heart, I think, is a different energy. My conviction about heart energy is that it's it's a courageous energy. So if, I'm, if I apply my heart to say that belief, I go, I actually don't believe in hell. And I would never want to subject my kids to that kind of psychological trauma. Um, even if I probably did when you were younger, but I didn't, I didn't want to continue to do that or be part of that. And so it's the hard energy for me is a hard energy that is courageous and manifests itself as compassion. Mm. So when I'm behaving courageously, I'll inevitably be behaving compassionately. Whereas my head can be utterly convinced of something and it might actually articulate or manifest itself quite harshly, quite judgmentally, quite cruelly. Um, and so I think the energies of head and heart are very, very different energies. And that's the way I that's the way I divide those up. Not as processes but energies. Right. Can you tell when you're operating out of a head energy? Uh, yeah, because normally head energy is an intellectual energy and it requires right. a lot of stories. It's it, it's create it, the head creates narratives. You know, um, like I could think about people I could think about people that um, I've got people that I love with all, with every fibre of my being, I love these people. And there's times when they just piss me off. <laughs> and I could be, you know, really frustrated and quite emotional about a transaction I've had with someone who's very dear to me. And then, you know, someone will say, well, why are you angry? And, I, and, then, I'll cre- and then my mind will create this incredible story. Well, they da 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 And it's a compelling story. And then I... I package that story up in a big box and I wrap it up and I put a ribbon on it and I go, that's why. And then no sooner have I packed up that box of stories and ideas and rationale as to why I'm frustrated with that person that my mind goes, and there's more. And I unwrap the box <laughs> and chuck a bunch more in the box and I wrap it up again. And it's like, okay, and now more. that's it. That's my whole. And then I go, no, give me back that box and I unwrap it again. I've got more to put in. And then someone says, look, hey, in your heart, how do you feel about this person? My heart just goes, oh, I don't care about the stories. I just really love them. Mm. I just love them. Mm. Well, what about that big box of stories you've got? Like, oh, I don't care. I love them. I'm always going to love them. I'm going to love them even when they're a rat bag. Or <laughs> I'm going to love them even when, even when emotionally I don't love them. Even emotionally I'm feeling distant from them. Intellectually I'm feeling separate from them. But in my heart I can't. I can't yeah. exclude them because I just love them. So that for me is totally different energy. Mm. Emotional energy, head energy, heart energy. Is it easier, harder to manifest that heart energy with yourself as opposed to with other people? Oh, it's such a great question. 
I, I, I actually think that the relationships move in two directions. They obviously move outward to other people, but inevitably um, the most significant relationship I have is with myself. And I think we're extraordinarily hard on ourselves. I think we tell horrible stories about ourselves. Um, we emotionally torment ourselves. Um, and I've definitely done a lot of that. I've definitely done heaps of that. And I'm only... I'm, I'm only learning now, um, moving into. I'm not, you know, moving into late middle, you know, middle years. Um, <laughs> I'm only learning now how to get my head around that, which is which is about bringing generosity and non-judgment, not just to others, but bringing non-judgment to me. Um, without without dropping all expectations that I should have certain standards and values that I live by. But just incorporate an awareness that you don't always live your best life, the best version of yourself, and that that's okay. You know, you, you'll get there if you if you're generous, you'll get there, and if you're not generous, you won't. So for me, the non-judgment and compassion to self is a, is kind of a prerequisite for offering that to anyone else, which is probably why I didn't do it very well when I was younger. I didn't I didn't I didn't have a lot of patience or I had a lot of very heavily constructed stories that I would inflict upon others but I would never inflict a story on others any less so than I would inflict that same narrative on myself Mm. Um, which meant that not only was I quite harsh to them but I was also extraordinarily harsh to myself. Is the first step to deconstructing that harshness towards self awareness? I yeah, I think so. I think so. And it's also leaning into insecurity. It's also leaning into failure. Like I, you know, I, I don't believe in the eradication of insecurity and I don't believe in the, the avoidance of failure. I just think sometimes when we're insecure, it's because there's stuff going on that you should feel insecure about. If I'm a goldfish, even if I've <laughs> climbed to the top of that tree... And the wind starts to blow and someone says to me, do you feel safe up here? It's not so much. My fins are really struggling to grip the tree. <laughs> they probably should be because you should be in the water. You shouldn't be up here, you know. Yeah. Um, and if you get blown out of that tree, um, it'll be a painful descent but absolutely necessary one because you shouldn't have been there in the first place. Yeah. And so being honest about the fact that I'm a goldfish and shouldn't be trying to climb trees and if I fail and I'm hopeless at that, yeah. It's totally appropriate. That's okay. That's yeah. okay, right? Yeah, that's okay. Um, so if I'm Greg and I try and be a religious leader, that's a fail. If I'm Greg and I try and be a corporate guru, that's a fail. It's like, yeah, well, you're not, you weren't meant to do any of that. Um, that's okay. You, yeah, I created you to fail. It's all good. And you go, okay, all right. So that failure, that failure belongs. I felt insecure when I was doing it. Yeah, that insecurity belongs. Yeah. Good. I'm glad you felt insecure. Yeah. What does success look like now? Oh, it's a funny word, success, isn't it? Because I think we always... we, we um, I guess I'm trying to ask if you're, you know, what's your pond? If you're the fish, what, what's your pond? Well, I think I, I, I think the whole thing's a dance, you know. So I think the whole there seems to be this extraordinary um, 
someone once said to Alan Watts when Alan Watts was teaching about the nature of reality and um, someone interrupted his speaking and said, it sounds like we go round and round and round in circles. And Alan Watts just said, have you ever noticed what the universe does? (laughs) It's like the earth is spinning round and round, a big ball of sun which is spinning round and round. Like this whole thing is a big circular process it is all spinning round and round and he asked a really beautiful question he says when you get up and dance and spin round and round and round what are you trying to produce and it's like the guy goes i'm just dancing yeah because when you dance you dance that's the dance is the game the dance is the thing that you're doing and there's that whole Taoist idea of you know i think it's wu wei you know where it's the it's the effortlessness it's the it's where everything is done and yet you're not even trying to do it. Yeah. It's, the, it's, the, it's the ballerina who dances so beautifully and you, you look at that and go, it seems... You know, it's like those ice skaters. They do the triple lutz or whatever it is, <laughs> with the, you know, with the axle or whatever it is and they do it so effortlessly. It's like they didn't put any effort into it and it was just so perfect, you know. And I think that's, that for me feels like success when mm. I'm just I'm living out of a really pure space... I'm doing everything and at the same time doing absolutely nothing. And success for me is learning to take things which seem oppositional and just realise that wisdom, all the wisdom traditions take oppositional things and smash them together and then in the smashing of those opposites, there's this beautiful fragrance given off, you know. There's this beautiful higher understanding. Um, I think the Tao talks about... When you say something is beautiful, you make something else ugly. When you say something is long, you make something short. When you say that, that uh, something is good, you inherently make something else bad. And the Taoist kind of remind us that these kind of binary categories don't work for us, mm. that reality kind of... We actually don't really need them. And so for me, success is allowing that the sharp edges to go, getting in the dance, seeing everything happen and, and sometimes seeing nothing happen at all. Yeah. So, again, that is exactly the sort of answer you would expect from a contemplative who has, <laughs> who has time to make up nonsense. Oh, I love it. It's awesome. I yeah. think it also kind of feeds into my next question, and I think you've already touched on this, but it would be nice to sort of hear it explicitly, which is what are you currently either learning about or what are you currently curious about? Yeah, great. Um, I probably always learn by reading, mm. so that's always a big. It's always a big source for me. I, I I did think that I was learning about human consciousness and levels of awareness and all this sort of stuff. It was very very academic. I think what I'm trying to learn about is 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 how we relate and how humans evolve relationally. You know, like, how do we... Um, <clears throat> I was having a conversation with Lydia, um, your sister, the other day, and we were talking about how the first thing we learn when we come into the world is naked vulnerability. Mm. Uh, it's a lesson that we don't even know that we're learning, but you're born as a baby with nothing. You're utterly vulnerable. You're utterly dependent. Mm. You're naked. You've got nothing. And I, and I thought, now that's how we start. That's how we start life. And... Naked vulnerability is a skill set that we're going to have to go back to multiple, multiple times, right? And so, um, and then I think we go when we're little toddlers, we go into we go into um, 
you know, this kind of absorbing curiosity. This, you know, little kids are just into everything, you know. And but, but they're also into stories, and they get introduced to Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny, and 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 so they get introduced to this. They have a magical curiosity, and they become like a sponge. And I think, yeah, that's a relational skill set. We're gonna we. We need to keep. We need to hold on to that. We need to never lose our curiosity. Never lose the ability to absorb stuff. So I'm kind of just trying to track some kind of evolution of how we, of relational energy, how we evolve relationally, and see if I can't help both myself and others just have better relationships. Because I haven't always had great relationships with people, and but I think if you can have great relationships with yourself and great relationships with others, then you're going to have a rich and wonderful life. But that's that's probably where I'm. Uh, playing around at the moment awesome that's great it's actually it's nice to hear that actually yeah um if you were to speak to your 16 year old self what would you say oh i probably just would have encouraged him to just not behave just don't just don't follow the rules that's great advice yeah yeah uh, just, I probably would have told him. I think, I think one of the biggest things I regret is that I outsourced my value to institutions. It was, it was, it was just part of the way I was brought up. I went to a relatively exclusive school that told me that you needed to be a certain way, and if you were that way, you got rewarded, and if you weren't that way, you, you didn't enjoy any kudos or or um, any affirmation, right? Um, my dad went to the same place, was told to behave a certain way. If you behaved that way, you got rewarded and, and, and celebrated. If you didn't, you didn't. And so I had this natural inbuilt... Um, again, this is a total story. This, this could be utter bullshit, who knows? But <laughs> it's the narrative that I've told myself. Um, is that I, 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 I trusted. I trusted institutions. I, I think there's a history. I think there's an evidential history that I trusted institutions... And I outsourced my value to the people of power in those institutions. And I would rather have been a son of Crosby, Steeles and Nash <laughs> than, you know, uh, than a conservative, you know. I, I would have rather have picked up more of the spirit. I was born in the 60s. I was born in 65. So I was right in the middle of the 60s. There was a bunch of people that were going, this system is not working. Let's do Woodstock. Let's do hallucinogens. Let's... The community. <laughs> Let's throw off the garb of kind of this conservative um, way of doing life. And I think I think I'm more a child of those people. Yeah. Although they were excessive and ridiculous and quite. Um, that whole movement probably didn't end well and and was a social experiment that had some real downfalls to it. But but the spirit of that, which was to say, hey, we don't have to behave in the way. We don't have to outsource our value to big systems and big institutions. I love that. Mm. So I would tell my 16-year-old self, you probably are, are indigenously a hippie. <laughs> Swing away. Be that guy. Grow your hair long. Go and live, go and live in a commune, which I sort of did anyway. But yeah. you know, go, and, um, go and be that guy and don't worry about the institution. Let someone else keep those. You know, they don't need you. They're not going to. They're not going to want you. They're not going to value you, and you're not going to have much fun in them. Which is paradoxic for a guy that spent 23 years in formal religion. Yeah. Uh, and that a lot of that 
a lot of that was beautiful because of the people and a lot of that institutionally was just awful and horrible. Mm. Um, but I suppose also, deeply ironically, if you hadn't have gone through all of that, you wouldn't have come into the authentic place of... 100%. I am a hippie. Yeah, yeah. I think everything belongs, right? So you, you go through that, you learn some stuff and, um, and nothing's ever lost. Nothing's ever lost. That's awesome. Um, final question, which you may or may not have a response to. Is there anything else that you want to cover or talk about that I haven't asked about or that we haven't covered? Um, I, I probably would just, I probably would say that a big part of my story is my relationship with my wife. I, I probably, I probably say having a lifelong partner, uh, which, which not everyone is blessed enough to get. Um, but it, you kind of co-author. It's co-authoring a journey together, uh, and she's really different from me. But I think I think my whole journey's been made a lot richer just by um, having to do it with someone, and and to some extent, give an account for why you believe what you believe and think what you think, and then negotiate. Okay, well, if where are you on this journey, and how do we roll together? So um, you never, I mean, and obviously that's produced three beautiful kids and the sphere of influence that they bring and people that they bring into your life like Tara. And so this whole thing becomes a symphony of lots of participants, you know, symphonos, you know, a singular sound that's made up of lots of different participants. And I think that's to, to, view, to view my story from the perspective of a symphony rather than a solo, just incorporates all these other people, which is really valuable, right? Made my life beautiful. Very much so. I'm mm. very, very happy and blessed to be part of it. Good. Thank Lo- you. Loving it. <laughs> Loving it. Thank you so much um, for, for coming on and having a chat. We have these sorts of chats all the time anyway. Yeah, well, <laughs> but thank you for doing our, it on record. It's our first mere utterance, so there you go. I love it, I love it. Thanks, Dad. Love you. Love Cheers. In all honesty, this conversation with Greg, or Dad as I call him, is very much like many, many of the other conversations I grew up having. Our family has a culture of sitting on the front porch or in the living room, drink in hand, chatting about some of the things that we have just heard. This contemplative family culture was created in large part due to the way in which Greg is continually reflecting and asking the big questions. He has, and has inspired within others, a dedication to uncovering truth, not as a singular entity, but in the deepest sense of plurality. At Mere Utterance, we want to create a community of storytellers, and so we welcome you to visit our website, check out our blog, leave a comment, or send us a message. We would love to hear your thoughts on this conversation and would love even more to hear some of your story. Thank you again for joining us. And remember, everyone has a story. You just need to ask the right questions.